Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. But before we jump in, my inbox is always open to our listeners. So if you want to get in touch, I'm on Jacob at Journalism.co.uk. Right, let's get into it. Today, we're talking about addressing past failings when it comes to historical coverage of people of colour and marginalised communities. Our guest today is Sewell Chan, the editorial page editor of LA Times, and soon to be moving to the Texas Tribune. In September of last year, LA Times launched its Reckoning with Race initiative, which in short was its attempt to put its hands up, formally apologise for historically poor reporting on black, Latino, Asian and other underrepresented communities. And it was thorough. A series of articles followed acknowledging its role in discriminating against these racial groups, as well as the poor management of reporters of colour because of past standards. We hear a lot in the UK about the lack of diversity in the industry and how that, consciously or unconsciously, leads to overemphasising certain stories and scapegoating marginalised groups. Well, here is one newsroom which is trying to atone and rebuild after a long history of coverage which has stood for white supremacy and fueled stereotypes. Coming up, Saul reflects on the initiative more and how readers have responded after this. Hey job seekers, journalism.co.uk brings you the latest jobs and opportunities from around the media industry. Our job of the week is a senior reporter position for the Gazette, a news quest title based in Essex, England. For this position and all the rest on our jobs board, head on over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs and good luck. Sewell, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks for making the time to come on. Can you uh, give our listeners a snapshot of your working scenario at the moment? Uh, Hi, Jacob. Uh, Thanks. It's nice to be here. I've been working from home, uh, by and large, continuously since March of 2020. Um, My company actually began a very uh, partial uh, reopening in July, in which no more than 10% of employees could come back in. Um, I am part of a a cadre of volunteers um, who've signed up to come in a few times a week. Uh, So we are going back to the office in El Segundo, but, but plans, of course, are on hold for any further expansion, given the spread of the Delta variant. Yeah. Do you like working from home or do you really miss the newsroom? Um, I was someone who uh, had come into the office with near religious devotion for, you know, 20 years. And it was a big adjustment at first. I feel very fortunate that I have a space that I can be comfortable in, has good light. Uh, I just live by myself, so there aren't many distractions. So it has been a productive year, but uh, certainly at times, uh, frankly, a lonely and isolating one as well. And uh, I do miss the camaraderie of the newsroom. I'm not sure I want to go back the number of hours I I previously worked at offices, but I do think that some day-to-day interaction is important. And I do worry a little bit, frankly, about younger journalists, uh, journalists in the first decade of their career. Um, The research seems to indicate that people very early in their careers especially benefit from being in the office. You know, you just learn a lot, as as I did when I was in my 20s, from people with more experience, just, you know, seeing how they uh, conduct and comport themselves. And, uh, you know, I hope we can get some of that back. That'll be quite interesting to draw upon as we as we talk about what's been a, a big uh, staple of your focus in the last year. Um, we're going to talk today about the Reckoning with Racism initiative that the LA Times launched in September 2020. And um, 
I guess this was really a, a self-examination of the past failings of the of the organization when it comes to reporting on issues uh, impacting uh, minority communities. And, and um, was that what it was about? Was it about kind of righting wrongs, bearing the hatchet or really showing that transition of how attitudes are changing? I think more the former than the latter, Jacob, um, but I'm not sure I'd call it burying the hatchet, if you don't mind. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Just by way of context, the Los Angeles Times was founded in 1881, and the truth is that the founders of this place were also among the kind of, you know, city fathers of Los Angeles. Technically, LA's history goes back to the late 18th century. Uh, uh, during the era of Spanish uh, uh, rule. But in reality, this place was not settled other than by indigenous folks, who of course are a very important part of the LA story. This place wasn't settled in large numbers until the late 19th century. So the, the men who founded the LA Times were really among the men who also made LA what it is. They they brought the railroad out here. They they moved water irrigation to serve this this desert adjacent city. They they promoted like heck um, uh, uh, real estate interests and speculation. Now uh, yeah, they encouraged people from out east to come here. You know, very similar to the original California um, uh, gold rush of the eighteen uh, of the late eighteen forties. And these men had a very boosterish sense of L.A. Uh, they also, frankly, had a very naked political agenda. Um, you know, this place was dedicated, uh, among other things, to the true cause of industrial freedom, meaning uh, freedom of employers and of capital from uh, the shackles of labor and labor unions and all that. And it was also a very racially and religiously even specific identity. These were not men who really knew many or, or were close to many, you know, even Catholics and Jews, much less, uh, you know, African-Americans, uh, uh, indigenous peoples. And uh, the people we now define as Latino, who back then would have simply been described as Mexican, because, of course, this legally was a part of Mexico until the 1840s, right? I'm not saying that they carried that agenda throughout all of the next century. But the fact is that that history still weighs over this institution and in remarkable ways, given that it's now 140 years later, right, this December. So it's impossible to capture that history. Um, in in a single article, right? It's really impossible. There should be books written about this. There have been a few. Um, I think they're rather dated and don't necessarily take the perspective of what it means to do LA journalism today in the LA of today. So the main impulse, I think, behind the editorial, at least, was really a desire among ourselves as journalists, but also among our colleagues as staff members who organized, you know, Black and Latino caucuses within the Los Angeles Times News Guild, uh, the, the labor union rep representing our employees, and they really asked for this kind of accounting and reckoning uh, and a formal apology. Now, I happen to believe that apologies can be very important. They're not a panacea. They are a first step, but only a first step to righting a wrong. And I felt that just apologizing without actually really understanding what we were apologizing for would be a disservice. So then, therefore, we engaged in, you know, as comprehensive a, a historical survey as we could to explain to our readers just what it is that we feel we feel sorry for now. I think you're you're right there about the nuance. A lot of these things uh, tackle such complicated things across such a wide variety of people, whereby it's just, as you, as you say, more complicated than simply burying the hatchet. I guess when we're talking about things, you know, the root of which goes back, you know, a century, perhaps, otherwise maybe decades, why go to such lengths to 
dig up those old bones. Well, I think part of what we argued, and I want to point this out, is that the old wounds aren't as old as, as we think. Um, we started the editorial on our reckoning with racism with an example from the early 1980s, um, certainly within a lot of readers' living memories. You know, it was the beginning of the Reagan era, um, later the Reagan and Thatcher era. You know, we, we talked about this article in which, you know, young people from these kind of deprived neighborhoods throughout the perimeter of Los Angeles were described as marauders and kind of an invading force. And, and look, I want to be clear that I think, you know, the underlying truth of things is always important to document even when they're difficult. If violent crimes are occurring, the proper role of the journalist isn't to ignore them. But the journalist has to do more than simply chronicle. How we frame things is important. And by framing things as this kind of marauding force of use, of young people who were invading, you know, prosperous and overwhelmingly white communities, you know, we probably fed into a sense of racial antagonism and unease. Now, were we the only ones? No. Um, this was the early 80s. It, it was kind of, you know, the, the so-called war on crime was already underway. It would accelerate dramatically within the next decade with the crack cocaine epidemic here and, and the mass incarceration. But, you know, we didn't really do what, what we would now today view as responsible journalism. So we started with recent examples. We pointed out that in 1994, this newspaper um, endorsed for re-election a Republican governor named Pete Wilson. Now, Wilson had his, you know, advantages and disadvantages. What a lot of our Latino staff members were very bothered by was his support for something called Proposition 187, which would have really uh, severely cut back uh, public benefits available to immigrants. Uh, most of it was later struck down by the courts. And so the LA Times did not endorse Proposition 187 per se, but it was seen as kind of giving countenance and legitimacy to, you know, the governor pushing this, which in many ways is reminiscent, right, of some of the conversations we have today in 2021. And then finally, an example I'll point out is we, we looked at how we had covered the 1965 Watts uprising, the 1992 Los Angeles riots, and then, of course, you know, the kind of uh, civil unrest, uh, smaller in magnitude, I might I might add, um, that accompanied the racial justice movements last summer. And I think it's a very legitimate task of question, like what has changed and hasn't since 1965 and 1992. So we attempted to do that as well, because frankly, it's, it's actually, if I can be blunt, easier probably to condemn people long dead and long in the past. It's, it gets progressively harder the closer you get to our present time because you recognize that you know the past isn't really that far past. That's that's an incredible point, Sybil. I, I have to point that out. Um, 2020 was, of course, a, a big year when you know, themes of, of racial justice was really in fever pitch. Was the Black Lives Matter movement sort of the catalyst for this, or were you really thinking about this before May the 25th, 2020? It was a catalyst. You know, I found coming to the LA Times in 2018 that this was a place in some ways still struggling with a bit of an identity crisis. I want to be clear, I think the LA Times is terrific and does really, really ambitious work. But we, you know, we were still struggling with who we are, who we're trying to serve. The internet has complicated that, of course. It has made it possible for LA readers to benefit from the excellent reporting that they can find in national publications like the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. I think also that revolution, though, has made it harder for regional publications like ours to kind of have a voice, you know, you need to prove the case to your communities that you're really looking out for their interests. And you have to demonstrate, in my view, the value that comes from supporting local news, 
as opposed to merely national. I thought that looking at our past would actually help us really focus on what I believe needs to be our future, namely coverage of California and its many, many diverse communities. And so that was part of the impetus. Uh, the project came together in several ways. Um, members of the Latino and Black caucuses of the LA Times News Guild, our, our journalist's labor union, um, they asked for an apology. Um, a very senior reporter named Greg Braxton, who has long covered arts and culture um, in Los Angeles, wanted to reflect on his role in covering the 1992 LA uprising. And then finally, I had independently suggested on my own that we take kind of a hard look at ourselves. And so I think these forces all came together and um, our boss at the time, uh, editor Norman Perlstein, uh, decided that these strands really merited a whole series, a whole initiative. And so that eventually came together and became the lead editorial plus uh, plus a handful of, of additional essays and reflections by our journalists that were uh, that were published in September of 2020. And there has been extensive editorial about the LA Times history, acknowledging when it has stood up for white supremacy and explaining how the contexts of media ownership and journalistic standards allowed that to happen. Through reporters' own accounts, both past and present, it lays bare how stereotypes can infiltrate the newsroom and end up stigmatising entire communities. It also shows how many of these reporters have been the victim themselves of institutional racism. For example, Carlos Valdez Lozano, assistant metro editor, recounted how in 1987, as an intern of the paper, one of his stories that he had sourced quotes and material for had been rewritten by a white female reporter and he was not given the byline. Despite complaining, he received no apology. Another columnist, Gustavo Ariano, offered more optimism in showing growing progressive attitudes towards the Latino community, not shying away from many low points in rhetorics around this racial group, but the change that has been stirring from within, and ultimately winning Pulitzers for a series on Southern California's Latino community. Back to Saul now, who tells us more about the practical side, how stories were selected and assigned to reporters. Um, well, I worked with a terrific editor named Sue Horton, who is a senior editor, used to be the op-ed editor, and Sue edited uh, the editorial, of which I was the chief author, and then she kind of really assembled a really um, cool, you know, kind of palette of stories representing the experiences of different communities. Initially, for example, the, the series was going to really focus on, you know, experiences of Black and Latino journalists. I think the decision was made very wisely to, to expand that a little bit to cover uh, the Asian American community, you know, if we had had more resources and more time, uh, we could have also looked at the, the LA Times' coverage of Native American and Indigenous communities, which I think is really, really important. We also um, commissioned something called Voices from the Times Newsroom Past and Present, in which we talked to veterans of the LA Times about their experiences working here. Uh, and then finally, we also had uh, a, a video and uh, uh, that really looked at the times this past as well. So it was a project that really came together, you know, obviously as with any great piece of journalism, took a lot of collaboration with people across disciplines, including designers, video journalists, photo journalists, uh, copy editors, um, what you would call sub-editing, and, uh, and fact-checking. You know, that came together in, a, in about a month's time. Did you have to do much digging for this or was all the information and all the records quite easy to find? Oh, yeah. I, I wish I'd had time to do, for example, archival research. I didn't, but I read a number of books about the LA Times and its history. 
I asked many people um, for seminal articles to read, and I conducted, you know, a score of interviews or so. And, uh, you know, it's really about a probably about a three to four week process of uh, research, reporting, and then writing. Wow. So that's quite, um, it's quite the workload. How closely did you pay attention to editing? I, I said a moment ago how, I suppose, one of the theme in these stories is how reporters' stories were kind of taken away from them where they were heavily editorialized, they lost their bylines, you know, they were changed really from what the stories that they were trying to tell of these communities they cared about. How how carefully did you think about editing these very personal accounts and experiences? Well, um, you know, we, we obviously, Sue, and, and took great pains to, and Sue's a fantastic editor. And, um, you know, she engages in a lot of questioning back and forth with journalists to make sure that their intent and the nuance and the subtlety, you know, is conveyed. Um, she'll suggest areas where, you know, clarity of expression or meaning can be improved, and she'll let the journalist take the first stab at, at doing that, which is, of course, what great editors do, right? Um, bad editors just sort of set out just rewriting, and that's just terrible, because especially when you have something that's as personal and reflective as these essays were, you really want to preserve the journalist's uh, expertise. Your question, though, also got me thinking about, you know, the role of editors more generally. You know, I think editors are at their best coaches and servants and uh, supporters of the staffs that they are, you know, privileged to uh, to work with and lead. And um, editors are also, you know, gatekeepers of talent and really responsible for major decisions like who's led in the door and who gets to advance in the company. I think that's a very, very important responsibility. And editors, finally, were also gatekeepers of ideas, right? I mean, we sort of set the boundaries of kind of what is and isn't written about. And I think that being more reflective about those choices that we make and the kinds of implicit um, or other biases that might affect them is really, really important. I think a big part of what the last few years have taught us is that truly no one is free from bias. What we can do, though, is work really hard to acknowledge our blind spots because all of us have them. Certainly being a minority does not exempt one from having one's own blind spots in the hopes not of, of necessarily permanently squelching them, but, but rather um, to really... Um, you know, make up for those blind spots in the in the conscious decisions we make. So what's what's kind of your big takeaway and lesson on how stereotypes kind of infiltrate newsrooms, how that leads to stigmatizing communities and how um, how that kind of harms media reputations? Look, newspapers are creatures of the societies in which they exist. I think at their best, newspapers have often been founded or led or owned by people who, yes, have power and privilege, but also seek to deploy that power and privilege in, in ways that expose the, the injustices and the, um, the hardships of, of living in America. At their worst, newspapers have been run or led by or founded by people who try to exert, you know, kind of naked economic and political power. And we know that the latter is not a kind of journalistic model that any of us wants. You know, we all want the former. And so, you know, one thing I'm heartened by is that the values of journalists, I think, are rather, I hope this is not naive, but I think the values of journalists everywhere world over tend to be pretty similar. You know, we're people who want to interrogate and ask uncomfortable questions. Look, can journalism single-handedly rectify the ills of our society? Of course not. Can journalists help, you know, focus attention around those ills 
and then move toward not just diagnosing the problems, but even talking about potential solutions. I think that's a big next frontier for journalism. You know, we know that democracy, Jacob, is is kind of in recession or at least under pressure in so many parts of the world, including in major leading Western democracies. And I think the way out of that is for journalism to not just decry what's going on and investigate what's going on, though those are essential activities, but also try to bring people of different persuasions together and serve as the kind of unifying force that we once were. Or as you read um, uh, Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities, he talks about how newspapers almost invented, you know, the sense of a nation, the idea that, you know, you could cover something as as broad and vague and ill-defined as like France or or England. That was not the case for most of our history. I, certainly not the case in, you know, before the modern era. And so when you look at newspapers going back to the 17th century and later, you know, they helped bring about the very notion of community to begin with. And I think that, you know, our being kind of sentinels of democracy, not to be too corny, um, is the best way is the best way to carry that that community building uh, a tradition forward. Let's talk about impact for a moment, because a lot of this sounds like nice, virtuous ideas. But what did readers actually think? The following comes from letters to the editor after the project launched. Some people were indeed scathing, pointing out the lack of diversity that is still apparent within its ranks and the initiative being overdue. Here's one such example. It reads, There is a horrific hypocrisy at your paper on the subject of race, and you have travelled at a snail's pace to correct it. But many, many readers voiced their support for the initiative. One letter read, I would like to take this opportunity to thank each and every member of staff at the Los Angeles Times for daring to have the integrity in a sensationalised world. The reader identified themselves as a 40-year-old gay black man who has faced rejection by his peers. Others said it helped them understand systemic racism better, that rather than being a binary yes or no reality, actually unconscious bias can be at play. That person wrote, The LA Times deserves praise for finally airing its dirty laundry. One even mentioned they revived their long-expired subscription because of Sandy Banks' column on her experiences as a black reporter in the newsroom. It reads, I'm glad to be back with the LA Times. Keep up the good work. The response was overwhelmingly positive. I think people took very seriously that we're taking a sincere and humble um, and introspective approach toward our past. There were certainly a few readers who thought that we were um, either kind of being politically correct or unearthing dark histories that perhaps should remain buried or or even felt that we were too hard on ourselves, which I thought was an interesting critique because it's ultimately our decisions, our publication, but I, but I respect those who felt that way. Um, but it, the reaction was generally very supportive that the LA Times is far from alone in being a news organization that's reckoned with its past. You know, uh, uh, even as early as several decades ago, Southern newspapers were looking at their coverage or lack of coverage of the civil rights era. The Kansas City Star in the state of Missouri has done some really groundbreaking work looking at its historical coverage. Uh, publications have apologized for not covering or misrepresenting real racial violence, you know, including massacres and lynchings and, and horrific events. And so I think there's a lot of desire right now, you know, across a lot of different kinds of publications to take a careful look. Someone sent me a project that was uh, published out of New Zealand 
about the that publication's historic coverage of Maori communities, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. So I think there are a lot of opportunities in our archives for us all to think a little bit about the past. So it's a great point. And and no, there are other organizations, indeed in the US, doing doing other similar things. Sticking with the idea of impact, what has it changed internally for LA Times? Is it what's what's the policy now on grievances that readers have with with coverage? Has anything changed? I wouldn't say our formal processes change that much because they've actually been fairly robust, I think, over or at least in recent years. You know, readers are always uh, welcome to su- suggest corrections if they spot an error. Uh, those are very, very clear, carefully monitored and corrections are published nearly every day. As a journalist, you'll never completely avoid making a mistake now and then. The key is to, you know, own up to it when you've made one and then correct the record. We also have a reader's representative to whom um, readers can turn if they have complaints about ethics, standards, or policies. Um, everyone here has an open door from the editor-in-chief on down. Everyone's email is follows the same format. But I think we've done better, you know, taking a step back, though, from the mechanics. I think we've, I hope we've done a better job listening. You know, I think journalism at its worst, you know, can be a little bit imperious or arrogant or removed. And that's really dangerous. You know, trust in media, at least in the U.S., is is kind of at a low point right now. But I think the, certainly the one of the first ways, things we can do to kind of arrest or slow that trend, that trust erosion, is by being humble and by being open-minded and by being curious and above all by being empathetic, which doesn't mean that you're agreeing necessarily with an unpleasant viewpoint, but you do need to understand and put the work into understanding where that perspective comes from. Yeah. So, so how do you measure kind of the success of this organization? You said it has been quite positive. What do you base that on? Well, our, our newsroom diversity has increased substantially. There are there have been a lot of managers who've been hired who are who are really diverse, which is very important because in general it's easier to find you know interns and entry level journalists who are diverse. But then we have you know the type we have the pipeline problem where those journalists are not then empowered and advanced in their careers, and some of them may become frustrated and even leave, and we don't want that. You know, I'm very proud to say that our masthead, what we call our masthead, which is our roster of the senior most editors, is, you know, majority people of color. Um, It's half female. And so as U.S. news organizations go, it's quite diverse. Uh, That said, we have a long way to go um, for the staff as a whole to represent, you know, our communities. Um, California is one of the states that where um, non-Hispanic whites have been a minority of the population for about six years now. And, you know, Latinos or Hispanic people make up about uh, half of L.A. city and county and about 40 percent of the state of California. And so, you know, getting to parity, getting to reflect, you know, the richness of this community as it is, it's going to take time and effort. I, I do want to ask a quick question just about the decision to put some of these stories behind the subscription. What was the what was the thinking there? Because I'm thinking that if you've got audiences who feel aggrieved about some of the coverage you've done in the past, why would they sign up to read your apology or acknowledgement of blame? You know, Jacob, that's a really fair question and one I don't have a real answer for. I suppose I could have advocated more um, more fiercely for to make some of that coverage free. I'm not sure if we had that discussion. Yeah, the letter from your owner, Patrick uh, Soon-Xiong, uh, was, was obviously free, but some of the more deep dives uh, were behind the subscription. I see. Well, um, yeah, I don't have an easy ex- uh, answer for that. I hope that people found value in what we wrote, um, even if they're uncertain about whether they, they want to subscribe long term. I do want to note that, you know, one can easily take out a subscription and then choose to cancel, you know, at a very, very low cost. 
um, if people feel inclined to do that. I think what you're getting at is a broader question of how do we become more just organizations and more inclusive if we're kind of insisting that only subscribers can read our content? I think that's a very fair question. Um, you know, the obvious answer or response um, is that advertising has kind of collapsed for all sorts of reasons, namely that all the money goes toward Google and Facebook and other and other Internet giants. Um, but but that is an explanation. It's not an excuse. So. So, yeah, you it's a great question. And I'll I'll reflect on that and and, and think about it. Damn. I think you touched earlier on about the different forms of diversity that are out there. Gender, sexuality, religion, age, class, disability, etc. Are there any lessons from this that you think your successes might take thinking about other forms of diversity? You know, not directly, but I do think that one of the lessons of all this is that communities matter um, and communities have memory. Um, and if you treat kind of any group badly or, or they feel the coverage is really one sided and that really could apply to any community. I, you know, I don't know, like Catholics, uh, uh, Iranians in, uh, and Armenians in L.A. who have their own very, very rich history. Uh, the very substantial Jewish community here. After I joined the LA Times, we ran a very unfortunate letter to the editor from someone who was basically um, arguing in favor of saying that the incarceration of, of Japanese Americans during World War II was, was in fact a good thing. It's a very fine line. I don't think that our desire is to censor that outcome, that, that opinion, but we should have really demanded that that letter writer had to use some evidence for her position, particularly since the U.S. government apologized th for this 30 years ago and paid reparations. So, you know, examples like that. And we had to meet with members of the Japanese American community who felt, you know, very concerned about that. Uh, we recently met with representatives of the Jewish community in Southern California to talk about rising anti-Semitism, not in our pages, but, but the phenomenon more generally. So, you know, I think we need to be more attentive to the communities we seek to serve. Um, that doesn't mean pussyfooting around difficult issues, but it does mean, you know, always having one's door open, always, you know, coming, coming to difficult questions with an open mind. As you take your next step to the Texas Tribune in October, congratulations. Uh, what will you do there and what will be your focus? I'm going to be the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, which was founded in 2009 as an all-digital, non-profit, non-partisan news organization that covers Texas politics and policy. What would you say is your top skill that you've relied on throughout your career? What's fair to you well? Curiosity and empathy. And uh, how do you work on that skill? How, how do you train that muscle? By trying to avoid intellectual laziness and shortcuts, um, by always trying to look at issues in their fullness. That does not mean false equivalency, I want to be clear. That does not mean a false balance. You know, on most issues, there are multiple perspectives because humans are complex and messed up, being open and reflecting that we too are, as journalists, are probably complex and messed up is part of it. Um, and, and trying to really maintain one's, one's poise and reasonableness at a time when, unfortunately, so much of social media doesn't incentivize that. So thank you so much for all of your time and insights on the podcast. Um, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Jacob, thanks so much for this opportunity. Really great to speak with you and your listeners. Yeah, and, and all the best in your new role as well. Thank you, Jacob. Really great to speak to Sewell there and lots to reflect on. One considerable takeaway for me would be making an apology to your audience from the perspective of lived experience. Some of their articles started with reporters saying how they grew up in homes where the paper was banned and now they work for that organisation. 
Giving space to reporters to share their experiences seems like the key strategic tip from LA Times, as well as really diving deep into the history books to be very specific with your apology. If you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to join me on the show, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.